0: Please turn to Isaiah chapter 44, and uh, actually we'll begin at verse 24. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we uh, come to you this morning needy because we need to um, know your word accurately and we need to know then how to how that works out in our lives. We thank you for the prophet Isaiah and for your speaking and inspiring him to declare your word. We ask that your spirit would declare your word as I preached this morning, that, it would, that your spirit would so work in us that our hearts would be changed, that we'd be drawn closer to you, but also that we'd be drawn closer to one another. And so we commit our time to you and we ask your blessing upon it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'll just just remind you that Isaiah has a major break at the end of chapter 39. So the first part of Isaiah actually runs from chapter 1 to chapter 39. Chapter 40, then, is distinctly different. And um, I'll explain uh, in a moment uh, what that causes some people to do. Um, But the first part... uh, and the second part are bound together. It, the book is unified, and we want to remember that. But the last part, 40 through 66, actually focuses more on uh, the restoration of Israel and upon the coming of uh, God's servant, the Messiah. That's that's the focus of chapter 53. We begin then this morning in Isaiah 44, and... Uh, I had begun at verse 23, but 23 is, uh, is either attached to the the uh, the former section, or uh, it introduces the section we're in, and it's it says it's a command: sing, uh, O heavens, for the Lord has done, uh, for the Lord has done it. Shadow depths of the earth break forth into singing, O mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and he will glo- he will be glorified in Israel. And uh, so that's either ending this first section or or it's beginning and introducing the section that we're in. Um, and so I begin at verse twenty four. And I want to draw your attention to some things. First of all, I draw your attention to the phrase, Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. That phrase shows up 30 times in the book of Isaiah. And it reinforces something that we all believe, but we do not dwell much upon as we go through the book. And that is this. Isaiah is not so much Isaiah's words as they are the Lord's words. Yes, in the mystery of inspiration, Isaiah is writing the words down, but as he proclaims them and writes them, he is not speaking his word. He is proclaiming God's word. That means that what Isaiah spoke and wrote, God spoke and wrote. And what God spoke and wrote, Isaiah spoke and wrote. And um, we understand that there's a mystery there that we can't comprehend, but that is what the Scripture teaches. The church has never understood the mystery of inspiration. She has only sought to articulate it. That mystery is that God so worked in Isaiah and the other prophets that when they wrote and preached, what they said in their own words were God's words. Isaiah wrote the words, but God inspired them. Everyone lives life based on some authority. Prior to the 17th century, those in the West lived submitting to the authority of the Scripture and the church. The church, it was believed, interpreted and applied the Scriptures. But following the 17th century, the authority of the Scriptures and the church were abandoned for the authority of reason. Now, it's not that people prior to that time did not use reason, but prior to that time, reason was not the ultimate authority. What began in the 17th century has digressed in the 21st century into scientific materialism. Now, the only authority is what can be established with reason and scientific method. This has led to what is called the New Atheism, One new atheist, Dr. Lawrence Krauss, believes that teaching religion to children is child abuse. Michael Shermer, a popular and outspoken atheist in the United Kingdom, argues that God is a social construct based upon evolutionary theory and social psychology. And to make his argument, he tells a story about what happened as man evolved. Of course, his story isn't true. Um, It's not something that he discovered. It's his own opinion. And the story that he designed, or that he articulates, is read back into the evolutionary theory. It doesn't come out of evolutionary theory. However, the new atheists have a glitch in their argument. Dr. Krauss writes this. Whenever scientific claims are presented as unquestionable, they undermine science. So he doesn't believe that science can make any um, claims as unquestionable. Because they can always be questioned. Similarly, when religious actions or claims about, the sanctity, about sanctity can be made with impunity in our society, we undermine the very basis of modern secular democracy. We owe it to ourselves and to our children not to give a free pass to governments, totalitarian, theocratic, or democratic, that endorse, encourage, enforce, or otherwise legitimize the suppression of open questioning in order to protect ideas that are considered sacred. 500 years of science have limited, have liberated humanity from the shackles of enforced ignorance. And religion is enforced ignorance. Well, the glitch in Dr. Krauss' argument is this. One question presented by the atheistic scientists of our world that is unquestionable is that there is no God. So they can't make any other statements that are unquestionable about anything except that one that there is no God. I bring this up not because I want to engage in dispute with scientism. I bring it up because I want to challenge you. I want to challenge myself. It's easy for me to study the text of Scripture and abstract moral principles or point out how all Scripture leads to Christ. It's actually not too hard to sit in front of a computer screen and analyze Hebrew and Greek. It's really not. You get, you, you get the tools down, you know what's going on, you, you construct diagrams and you construct uh, structural uh, images so that you can see what's going on, and you just analyze the text to death. But it never means anything. All you do, all I do is analyze. What does it mean? How does it affect me? How does it change my life? God wants us to talk about the gospel, but more than that, he wants us to believe the gospel. He wants us to trust him. Every passage of Scripture challenges us. We ask the question Has God spoken? Is that what he's really done? John Oswald, commenting on these chapters of Isaiah, he writes this, that I think it's really appropriate for us to think about these things. Those who hold biblical theology seriously cannot avoid the nature of Isaiah's arguments. One must face those arguments and deny or accept their truthfulness. Isaiah claims that the evidence for the uniqueness of God that he is the sole creator, rests on his ability to predict novel turns of history in advance, an ability the idols and their technicians do not have. Specifically, those predictions include Assyria's all but total conquest of Israel and Judah, Assyria's failure to capture Jerusalem, the fall of Assyria, the fall of Jerusalem uh, 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 and Judah to Babylon, the exile, the fall of Babylon to Cyrus, Cyrus's proclamation of freedom and encouragement to rebuild, the return of a remnant, the establishment of a messianic kingdom, the shape of the present and the absence of any authorial identification except that of Isaiah ben Amos, that is, Isaiah son of Amos, lead me to believe that these predictions have been made far in advance of the events and that their eventual confirmation would be the crowning evidence that Israel's God is God alone. One cannot escape this logic. One must either accept the evidence as given and adopt the conclusion, or else admit that the evidence has been tampered with and deny the conclusion. One cannot accept the conclusion while denying the evidence. What's he talking about? The evidence that's being presented is that God predicts the future. We'll look at that in a moment. But when God names Cyrus, He does it 150 years before He's born. You either believe that and you accept it, or you don't. And there's no middle ground. And when people play games like they do with the Scripture, um, to account for what Isaiah says, all they do is undermine scripture. All they do is toss out what we believe. And so the challenge to us when we read the words thus says the Lord is to under is to accept or embrace the idea that the scriptures consisting of the Old and New Testaments is either God's word spoken through his prophets or it is not. Everyone, whether an atheist or a Christian, lives by some authority. God speaking to us in Scripture is the authority to which we submit. And when the church speaks God's Word, we are obliged to submit to it. If we are concerned with the moment in which we live, we must wrestle with, wrestle with the fact that we are moving into darker and darker times. We really are. Things are not getting better, folks. They're getting worse. It may be that Christianity is exploding in the Middle East, and I believe that it is. Many Muslims have been converted to Christ and uh, they're by the thousands. There are still strong Christians in China, and Christianity is still growing in China, but it's growing in a dark world. In 1873, John Henry Newman, anticipating the coming age of unbelief, wrote these words. The trials which lie before us are such as would appall and make dizzy even such courageous hearts as St. Athanasius, St. Gregory I, or St. Gregory Seventh, and they would confess that Dark as the prospect of their own day was to them severely, ours has darkness different in kind from any that has been before it. We live in darker times because liberalism has demolished our world. A liberal, you know, liberal. A liberal. I, the idea of liberalism, in the sense that you 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 study the classics and you you study uh, those kinds. of There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with asking questions, for goodness' sake. But they have undermined the very foundations on which we stand, and our times are darker now than they were at the time of Saint Athanasius, and he wrote in a time it was very dark so then first of all I draw your attention to this truth God has spoken and he has spoken through his prophet Isaiah and and he calls you to respond to that do you believe it will you live in light of it will you walk in the light as he is in the light that's the challenge Thus says the Lord. Do you believe it? Second, I draw your attention to what God has said through his, through the prophet Isaiah about himself. And I want to draw your attention to several details. The first detail to note herein is that God states that he is the Redeemer. And the idea of the Redeemer has been discussed before... Instead of thinking that God is buying His people back, that's usually what you think when you think about redeeming something. Like if someone uh, loses their home, you know, at least it used to be, if someone lost their home in foreclosure uh, and it was uh, sold, or if it was sold for taxes, that person had six months to redeem his house. That means that he could put the money up and buy it back. Now, I don't know if that's still the case today, but that was what it used to be. Um, and so the idea of redeeming something, the idea of br- buying it back. And, uh, and that's not really what God is talking about as a redeemer. He's talking instead about delivering his people from the clutches of Babylon. And that's what lies in the very context. So when he, we think about redeemer, look at what that means in the context of Isaiah uh, 44 and 45. It's about bringing his people back from captivity. That is the focus. Second, I want you to notice the familiar words. And this has come up over and over in Isaiah. And it's being emphasized all the time. God is the creator. He is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth. He is also the creator of His people. Notice, He knew them from the womb. He knew them from the womb. He means by that that he knew them before they were ever born and makes God the one who actually creates them. He creates them from the womb. He's their God. He's the one that is that is um, the maker of all things. They became His people by divine initiative. It's the same concept you see in Jeremiah. You know, before, you know, before you were ever born, Jeremiah, I knew you. The idea of God sovereignly creating a people. That's what He does through the Gospel. God sovereignly working, bringing people to Himself. The Holy Spirit working in people's hearts to draw them to God. Yes, they're responsible to believe. Of course they are. But it's the Spirit of God who works in the heart to make us holy, willing, and able to serve Him. That's what Heidelberg Catechism question 1 says. And so God is the creator and He's the creator of His people. He's, he's the one who, who, uh, who formed them. They did nothing to become His people. And we must never confuse this issue. God is the one who redeems. He is the one who is saved. We often talk and argue about justification by faith alone. Actually, the Bible doesn't talk about justification by faith alone. It talks about justification apart from works. Works of the law. And so that idea of alone came up because... Faith is the alone instrument of justification. That's what the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11, says. Those whom God effectually calleth, He also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness in them, but by pardoning their sins, and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisf- satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on Him and His righteousness by faith, which faith they have not in themselves, it is the gift of God. Faith is the... Thus, receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet, people always skip over this part of the confession. We go on and on about justification by faith alone. That's true, I'm not going to deny that. But they skip this part of the confession, it seems, in their discussions. Yet, it, that is faith is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. So, just, so faith is the alone instrument of justification, but it's never alone. And I think sometimes the focus on sola fidei In our day, when we try to focus on faith alone, we've forgotten, we haven't talked about the reality that faith is never alone. Justifying faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by all other saving graces and it's not a dead faith. And when we, when we get into those discussions, people start saying, oh, well, now you're, saving, you're saying people are justified by their works. No, that's not the case. They're justified by faith alone, but the faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by all other graces. That doesn't mean they're accompan- they, that they accompany it perfectly. That doesn't mean that everybody that once are justified, oh, they're never going to sin again. That's not true. Um, but we need to understand that God when he saves us when he justifies us is he transforms our hearts we're being renewed in the spirit of our mind God is the creator of his people you see this is the problem that Israel seemed to have especially after the Babylonian captivity. They had the law, they had the sacrifice, but they didn't have faith. How could that be? They believed in Yahweh, and they worshipped Him, sort of. However, they also worshipped other gods. Following the Babylonian captivity, Israel was cured of its idolatry, sort of. While they didn't worship handcrafted idols... They sought to serve God by their own efforts. Luke 15 is a perfect picture of this. It presents a crucial problem that the Jews had. They didn't repent. Luke 15, both sons, the prodigal and the one that stayed home, had the same problem. They didn't want their father. They wanted what he could give them. And Jesus told this parable because he wanted to get the Pharisees' attention. You don't want God. You're not really you don't want him. You want what he'll give you. You want what he'll provide you with, but you don't want him. And the beauty of the prodigal son is that he comes to his senses. And when he goes home to his father, it's not to go home to say, Oh, Dad, give me this or that. It's to go home and say, Father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. I don't deserve to be called your son. You know, let me be a servant in your house. But he comes back and what does he want? He wants his father. And that's what the Jews didn't want, that was their problem. They believed themselves righteous. They did not submit to the righteousness of God. And that's what Paul underscores in Romans when he writes. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Romans 10.3 What shall I say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Christ is that rock of offense. Christ is the rock of offense. Christ is the one who died for our sins. That's what we say. Christ is the one we we point to and tell people, put your faith and trust in Him and you will not be put to shame. Rely upon Him and God will deliver you from the bondage of sin. Well then, the third detail that God uses to describe himself is that he makes fools of those who practice divination. Notice um, what God says in 44-25. He frustrates the signs of liars and he makes... <clears throat> Fools of diviners who turn wise men back and he makes their knowledge foolish. It's interesting in verse 25 that God, uh, as Alec Montier says, he says all the uh, probings are nonsense. In other words, that's what God makes of the foolishness of these deceivers. But it's interesting in forty-four twenty-five. Isaiah actually does a play on words. There's a play on words. He, he he uses a Hebrew word, sakal, which means to be foolish, but it also means, and can mean, to be wise. And he uses a word that sounds exactly like it um, as kind of a, it's a uh, it's 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 irony. He's poking fun at them. They believe that they are wise, sakal, but their sakal is nothing but really foolishness. It's just a play on words, kind of like in Sunday school this morning. I talked about missionary from uh, China who sent me a note, and in his note he put in there YARP for all these people and I didn't know what YARP meant you know and uh, so I wrote him and I said yeah I looked in the dictionary I couldn't find the word YARP and he uh, so he writes back to me he goes well it's pray written backwards I said oh I didn't know that. It's that kind of a thing that Isaiah is doing. He's using a, a play on words, you know, spelling it different. Um, it's a different word. It means stupidity and foolishness. And he deliberately puts that in here um, to draw attention to the fact that these diviners who think they're wise, think they're sharp, think they've got a lot of wisdom, and they're going to give it to people. No, God's going to turn it into foolishness and um And that's what God does with these men. They are not, false prophets are not speaking God's word. Whether that's true in Israel back in Babylon or whether it's true today in the church when you hear all these guys making all these prophetic predictions, a lot of them about the end times, you know. One man wrote a book back in 19, I think it was 70-something about the Middle East oil crisis and how that was leading to end times. And then later on, all he did was change a little bit and republish the same book and, um, and talked about the same... They're always trying to predict the return of Christ. He's like, why don't you stop? You're, you're actually being foolish. You're trying to predict something that God has not given us the details to know. And God makes foolish people that do that. The fourth detail that God uses to describe Himself is that He is the sovereign Lord. He raises up someone who at the time didn't wasn't even born. And He wouldn't be born for 150 years. Cyrus was not around. And this is one of the rubs that, that scholars and biblical critics have. That's why you'll read, you'll, read, you'll read people who talk about 1st Isaiah, 2nd Isaiah, and 3rd Isaiah. Do you know why they do that? Because they don't believe that Isaiah could predict the future. So if Isaiah is writing about Cyrus, guess what? This passage and what follows must have been, had to have been written, it had to have been written at the time of the Babylonian captivity. Why is that? Because Isaiah couldn't predict the future. The only thing that prophets can do is look at the times like we do. We look at the times and say, oh yeah, we're getting into darker times. People are doing this and that and it's going to get worse if if they don't change. That's the kind of prophecy that scholars think Isaiah was. He could only look at the times just like the prophets around him. They could kind of predict the future based on what they saw. And so when they come to this passage where Isaiah actually says, you know, well actually it's God, God says, uh, He calls Cyrus. Well, wait a minute. He didn't, uh, he wasn't born. And he wouldn't be. So here's the challenge. It comes up again, thus saith the Lord. It comes up here. Are you going to believe what God says? Are you going to analyze it to death and ignore it? You're faced with that challenge. Notice though that God is the one who confirms the word of His servant Isaiah. God is the one who confirms it. God is the one who fulfills the counsel of His messengers, the prophets. God's the one that does it. He says about Jerusalem, He says about Jerusalem, She shall be built, verse 28. He says about the temple, Your foundations will be laid. And guess what? They were. That's what Cyrus did. He sent people back to Jerusalem to rebuild to rebuild the temple. Cyrus was a kind of a king who um, wanted to be in the favor of all the gods. And so he sent back everybody that was captive. He would encourage them to go back and rebuild their temples because he wanted to be in the favor of all the gods. You know, But God knew this ahead of time. God didn't predict it because it was just going to fall out. God actually brought this to pass. And that's what happened. Jerusalem was rebuilt. The foundations of the temple were laid. Notice too that... Who is it that works in Cyrus? Look at what, look at what is said. He says... He says to Cyrus, verse 1 of chapter 45... Whose hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him. God is the one who's doing this. To open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Who will go before Cyrus? The Lord God. I will go before you. I will level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will be, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hands of seek in secret places. God is working in the history of a pagan king, of a pagan nation, and he's using those people to, to um, to bring about his desire for his people. He's working out the purposes for his people, Israel. Now, if we just kind of think for a moment... Because I get really frustrated. I really do. I'm, I'm, I confess to you all. I get frustrated. I try not to read the news because it makes me so angry. But I have to say this. When I look around this world... And we see how things are bad, Right? We see what they're doing in China to the Christians. We see what the what, what Americans are doing now. They want to, now it's the law in Oregon that teacher that schools must teach. It's a necessity from the earliest grades. The the L B G T view of life. It's the law now in Oregon. Does that make you angry? Because it makes me angry. We can Christians are. Guilty of child abuse because we because we teach our children about God. But these people aren't guilty of child abuse because now they teach children about LBGT. What what kind of a world do we live in? And when I think about it, I get angry, but then I look at Isaiah and I say to myself, God worked in pagan kings to bring about the purpose for His people. And what Isaiah is saying about Israel, He's saying about us, the church. The church is going to come out glorious in the end. Even through all the suffering that people are going through, the church is going, to be, is going to come out glorious in the end. The church is what's going to be here when everything else is gone. Why? Because that's God's purpose. God wants people to know Him and to worship Him and to love Him. Well, we don't see that happening, but if we understand that God works through unbelieving, wicked nations... To bring about his purposes, then that should at least encourage us, because then we look at what God's purpose is for the people, and what do we see? In verse three, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the land and the hordes of secret and secret places. Why? Verse three that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. For the sake of who? For the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel my chosen. For the sake of my people. I want you to know that I am the Lord God, the God of Israel, and I call you by name. And I want you to know that for my people's sake. I call you by name and I name you, though you do not know me. <laughs> like, wow, well, here's this pagan king. He doesn't know God, but God's calling him by name even though he doesn't know Him. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you don't know me. Wow. And what's the purpose that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. God's working through this pagan king who doesn't know him so that this pagan king may know that God is the one who called him by name and that he did so for the sake of his people. And that He did so that people people may know. From where? From the rising of the sun, the east, and then it says to the west. In other words, the whole world. That people from the whole world may know that there is none other besides Me. I am the Lord. Wow. God does this mighty work for His people and so that people may know Him. And what does He want them to know about Him? That there is no other God. Who creates light? Where does light and darkness come from? I, the Lord, create darkness. I make well-being and calamity. That's what he did with Cyrus, right? I'm going to open the gates. I'm going to give you the treasures of other people. I'm going to give you all this. Well, that's fine for Cyrus, but it's calamity for the people that he took. It was fine that Cyrus went into Babylon and took it, but the, the Babylonians uh, had to run away. Most of them are Chaldeans, and they took the river back down to where they were on the, south, on the, on the Persian Gulf, their own home. That was a calamity for them. But who did it? Well, God. I'm the one that forms light. I'm the one who makes well-being and creates calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these things. He looks at the heavens, verse 8. Now, some of your versions, if you look at the old King James Version, you'll find that I make well-being and create calamity is um, I, uh, I think it's I make peace and I create evil. That's the way the King James Version translated it. Actually, the Hebrew word ra it does mean evil, but not all the time. But I want you to understand that God is the one who creates light and darkness. God is the one who does this. He says all these things. And so, when we look at what God reveals to Isaiah, what he tells Isaiah to declare, we see these four, there's probably more, but we see at least these four details. God's a redeemer. God's sovereign in history. God's a creator of all things. God is the one who works in wicked people to bring about his purposes, which in the end will, will benefit his people. So now when we sit back and we listen to the news, like me, we sit back and we listen to the news, we get frustrated with what we see, and we look, we look at what's happening even in our political situation, and we say, "Wait a minute, that's evil. We look at abortion, we say, "That's evil, and it is evil." In and in, in New Mexico's the worst. Well, we're right up there with New York, I guess. We'll kill babies post-birth. That's murder. But nobody cares. Our our governor invites people to come here because that's our position. Isn't that nice? Isn't that something to be nice that we're known for? Abortion? I mean, that really bugs me. When I see our soldiers, they go wherever the government sends them, they get shot or blown up, and no, they get back, and everybody treats them like garbage. That angers me. Does it anger you? Does it bother you? Well, it does me, and it causes me anxiety until, until, until I read the words of Isaiah that the God of heaven and earth, the only one there is, the creator of all things, works in wicked people to bring about his purposes. And then I'm brought to this reality that I too am a wicked people. I too am a sinner. I too have a heart that, that, that resists the Lord God. And the only thing that changes that is Christ. So as you live in your world and you think about what's going on, you live your life and you get sometimes you will get frustrated with things. Remember this. God is the one who's created. God is the one who is working even now. That he may be known all over the world and that His people may be redeemed and glorified. He does His work for us. And that's just, that should give us some um, comfort in the midst of the violent and even getting more violent world in which we live. May God be praised... And may we, as His people, do all that we are called to do to make Him known, to call people to Christ, and to see people see God work in their lives to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do thank You for the words of Isaiah, and they are challenging They were challenging to the people of, of Judah when Isaiah spoke them. Because they were probably spoken in, in the courts of the king and to the people about things that had not happened yet but that were going to happen. The threat of, of captivity was not just an th- idle threat. God said it will happen. Isaiah told the people that. But now he turns around and says he's going to deliver them. He's going to restore them in a way that is just beyond our belief. And what we have to take from this is that you are the same God who works in us now in the midst of the growing darkness in which we live. And you work that, you, that we may know you, that others may know you that we may praise you and that you may lift us up through Christ our Lord. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.